It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? When we thought about issues to our business with Silicon Valley Bank, it wasn't like we would wake up one morning and like the bank would be a smoking hole in the ground. But because we assumed that this was not something that would just happen overnight or that we would only see, would only appear to us to be happening overnight, we always sort of thought we would have a few weeks to kind of get that set up. And that was what turned out to not be the case. Hello and welcome to Danny and the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech this week. We have a story from inside the SVB mushroom cloud. So, as all of you know, SVB Silicon Valley Bank, America's formerly 16th largest bank, collapsed a couple weeks ago and threw the financial world into chaos. And one of the companies that was very much caught in the blast radius was Rippling, which is a startup based out here. They handle payroll and a bunch of other kind of mundane tasks that go with managing a company. Anyhow, on the Friday that the FDC swooped in, shut down Silicon Valley Bank and took possession, Rippling, which handles payroll for hundreds of thousands of employees across the country, had a bunch of payments that had already been sent on their way along the digital rails um, handled by SVB, about $130 million worth of paychecks owed to more than 50,000 people. So when SVB blew up, that cash was frozen, creating total chaos. And for those folks whose paychecks were, you know, in suspended animation, that was a pretty terrible personal situation, very stressful. But Rippling lived to tell the tale. And this week we have on Parker Conrad, who is Rippling's founder and CEO, to tell us about that crazy weekend, how he ended up raising $500 million in the space of 12 hours to make sure that people would get paid uh, when, you know, the world opened up again for business on Monday morning. He also talks about that just a huge hole that SVB's implosion uh, leaves in the tech ecosystem and what he learned from this, you know, this massive moment of crisis. And just for context, Conrad has been doing startups uh, out here for years and years. Before this, he ran Zenefits, an HR software unicorn that grew super quickly, then very dramatically ran into the sand. Conrad was forced out. It was a kind of classic rise and fall type story. And basically since then, he's been running rippling. So he comes at this with some battle scars and now obviously some fresh war stories. So I think you really enjoy this one. Really as a view from very close to the SVB collapse, what that looked like, how it has played out since, and what it means for the tech world out here, tech and fintech, as we navigate what feels like a worsening financial situation as more banks collapse, interest rates rise, etc. So Without further ado, I will now hand you over to my conversation with Parker Conrad, founder and CEO of Rippling. Enjoy. I gather that the last 10 days has been a little busy for you. Yeah, it's it's been pretty exciting. I mean, died down a, a few days ago now for me, but the 10 days before that was was pretty intense. So if you could just start by describing briefly what Rippling is, and then let's go back to that insane morning where SVB 
went poof. And just if you could just walk us through what happened there, because I think in a way what happened with you guys, I feel like was emblematic of what was of why the SVB collapse is so stunning and such a kind of a bigger deal than perhaps a lot of people thought. Yeah. So Rippling is a company that makes payroll, HR, IT, and finance software for small businesses. So we do everything from getting your employees paid, obviously sort of super relevant to this conversation, but also doing things like getting them access to all the right apps, getting them access to Salesforce and GitHub and Dropbox and things like that, getting right. them their computer shipped and set up, getting them corporate credit cards, expense reimbursements, that sort of thing. And the payroll thing's critical because the way payroll software works is that we debit our clients a few days ahead of payday. Hmm. And so we our, our clients send us money and then that money needs to sit in our account for like three days just to make sure we actually have it. That's how long it takes the transaction to settle. And then once that happens, we send it on to their employees for payday. And what, what happened is we used until recently Silicon Valley Bank as the rails for all of our money movement in the United States. And we woke up on Friday morning and Friday was payday for a lot of companies. And so there were a bunch of transfers that we had initiated to go out to employees on Thursday evening right. for funds that our clients had sent us like on Monday. So long before there was any indication of any issues. Sorry, just pause there. On, on Thursday night, I mean, obviously there was already rumblings and because I think it was on a, the Wednesday that SVB came out and said, look, we need to raise $2 billion. We're going to write, you know, going to sell some shares. We're going to take out some new bonds, etc." And then everybody freaked out. I think on Wednesday and Thursday, by the end of Thursday, we like, hmm, this could not be, a, this could go all pear-shaped as the Brits would say. Yeah. I mean, I, so I first heard about this really on Thursday. Someone yeah. called me, a founder of another company was like, what are you guys doing about SVB? And I was like, what are you talking about? And that was Thursday at around 11. And I had a one-on-one -on -one with my CTO at I think around 1 p.m. Thursday. And I started off the one-on-one -on -one saying, hey, I've created this Slack channel and it was called something like, you know, potential SVB risk. Right. And I said, I'm not even going to add you to it. I haven't added anyone from the engineering team yet. It's just, I've got a few people in finance and risk and I've asked them like whether they think there's any issue. If this gets any bigger, then I will get you and a whole bunch of people in here and it's possible there might be a fire drill that gets kicked off as a result of this. And literally by the end of the one-on-one, -on -one, like our one-on-one -on -one had turned into a war room. We'd moved into a much bigger room. Right. We had like 20 people working on this because it was, the situation was sort of deteriorating that rapidly. Like it was very clear. Like over the course of that meeting. Over the course of that meeting of that one hour. Wow. And so we ended the meeting with a group of people. We had sort of long ago set up, you know, a contingency plan with JP Morgan as sort of like, okay, you know, SVB is a single point of failure for us. Let's have something set up with JPMC so that if something were to go wrong with, with SVB, we could switch over. And so we were sort of putting that plan into action, but there, there were two problems. Um, one problem is that we always assumed we would have about two weeks to kind of get things right. live. And so right, right. we had accounts open, we were sort of reasonably set up, but it wasn't like a push a button and suddenly everything goes through JPMC. But even on Thursday, we thought, you know, we, we had that long. We didn't, I think even on Thursday when people thought things were deteriorating quickly at SVB, we did not imagine and certainly, you know, the folks on our board and other folks that we were talking with did not think that like payments would fail on Friday. Yeah. Um, we were much more concerned that, you know, maybe next week sometime someone buys SVB and maybe the acquirer starts looking around and like, uh, you know, who knows if like, you know, we have a very special set of access to do the money movement that we do with them. Maybe that goes away. We need right. to be prepared. And so it was an acceleration of that effort, but not something that we imagined even, even on Friday morning when we heard about banking problems and people not getting paid. We did not think that the issue was like SVB has literally failed. So what time do you wake up on Friday morning? So I got a call 5.30 a.m. from one of my colleagues who said, hey, bunch of people are saying they're not getting paid. You need to, you need to sort of get on top of this. And so yeah. I got up, went downstairs to my kitchen, 
pushed aside all the Legos on my kitchen table. And then you push them onto the floor. So then when you're walking around frantically on calls, so you that you get to on step Legos. on them. Yes, exactly. <clears throat> that's and right. Pierce the that's bottom right. of your foot and curse the gods as, as when that happens. That That's the way my house works right now. <laughs> um, so I pushed those aside, sat down, joined the sort of war room that we had going over Zoom on this. And basically, like, almost didn't leave that spot for the next three days. And so the the first problem with the move was, you know, we we sort of always thought we'd have, like, two weeks to do this. Yeah. And the second problem was it didn't account for, and I, I don't, you know, having looked at this a million different ways, I don't think there is a way that is possible to sort of account for what happens when the bank fails to all of the funds that are in flight for payroll, Mm. because like all of that money just kind of goes away. You know, it's sort of locked in the bank, Yeah. you know, even though it was like literally on its way out to employees. And what actually happened is, you know, we looked at all of our systems and all of our systems indicated that SVB had sent the money through to the Federal Reserve to be distributed out to all of the member banks. And so we had received back all of the acknowledgement files, all of the sort of transmission files that indicated that they had sent this along. And so as far as our systems were concerned, like the money had all been paid. And how much money and how many people are we talking about? It was about $130 million and a little over 50,000 people on Friday's check date. And then as well, there were people for Monday, for Tuesday, and for Wednesday. And that's 50,000 people with mortgages and school fees and car payments, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the average annual salary or the average annual wages for people in that pay run was uh, just under 50K a year. You know, a lot, a lot of people were hourly employees, you know, they were, and Ripley, look, we have some tech companies that use our service, but we also have coffee shops and, you know, manufacturing firms and healthcare companies that, you know, like dot physician offices, like it's not just a bunch of tech companies. Well, that's one of the things I think is that has come out since, but they're still being fought over is this idea. Oh, we're bailing out Silicon Valley. We're bailing out venture capitalists and techies. But, but at the end of the day, a lot of this stuff, a lot of these rails, a lot of the companies you guys serve and a lot of other companies, a lot of other people that are served by these companies are just normal folks that are all over California, all over the country. And that, you know, again, it gets back to that idea of people with bills who all of a sudden might not get paid. Yeah. 80% of the people in the payroll were outside of California. 65% of them work for companies that were not technology companies. Right. And if you look farther out than Friday, I mean, Rippling, you know, there are 400,000 people in the United States whose employer uses Rippling. And so- wow they're a much larger set of people whose whose payroll was potentially at risk. And now, in fact, actually, a bunch of people in the UK. So mm-hmm. we launched, starting in January, payroll in the UK. And so we started, you know, for US companies that have staff in the UK, they're paying them through Rippling. Right. And we're actually launching on April 1st, selling directly to companies that are headquartered in the UK. So we have, it's very early days, but we have 11 companies in the UK that have signed up to use Rippling. And we've got an office there that we expect to grow to over 100 people across the UK and Ireland over the next year. There are a lot of people that that depend on this. And um, so the systems all said that money had been transferred. We called up our contacts in the sort of operations teams at SVB and they said it was a it was just a backup a backlog right. you know it was, the, the volume was so high the ops teams were were sort of behind schedule it was going to go out in like the next window there was a 10 a.m. window mm. to the federal reserve for same day settlement 10 a.m. west coast pacific time right and then at it was at 9 o'clock when it was like want 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 game over for svb exactly so you know, at like 6 a.m., we're talking to them and they're saying it's going to go out in the 10 a.m. window. You know, don't worry about it. It's going to be OK. You know, that would have meant that people, you know, maybe it arrived a few hours later than normal, but it's still everyone would have been paid that day. And then at 9 a.m., I saw the announcement along with everyone else that the FDIC had had put the bank into receivership and that all of the funds were frozen. And so we did sort of two things or actually really three things at that point. One is, you know, went to the engineering team and said, 
I know that we were targeting next week to be up and running with JPMC, mm. but we've got until 1230 today. We've got three and a half hours. Like, can you guys just get to a point where we can generate like the right payments file that we can upload to JP Morgan in time to make the last same day payment cutoff? Because 1230 was JP Morgan's cutoff time. That was their absolute final cutoff time. Got you. And so we had 15 engineers that were working on that at like top speed, you know, just like as fast as they could possibly do it. We had another team of about 35 people that started working on all of the other sort of just grooving the rails and everything else that we would need, that we knew we would need over the course of the weekend to be able to sort of do this at scale the next week. Mm. Because like, it's one thing to generate the single payments file for today. It's another thing to be able to do all of the things that we do with our bank, you know, you know, issuing paper checks, receiving wires, you know, sending taxes out and stuff like that. So when you have those engineers doing that sprint to 1230, $130 million is frozen in time inside SVB. What money, even if you can get that JP Morgan thing to work, where's that money going to come from? So that was the second thing that we did is we said, we decided that, we would front the capital for that pay run. You guys just have $130 million hanging around? We did. So we had um, <laughs> about $450 million in capital. Right. About $80 million of that was tied up at SVB. Mm-hmm. So there, you know, not all of it was available, but it was distributed across right. a couple of other places. And so we sold about $130 million of money market mutual funds at JP Morgan and move the cash into our customer funds account at JPMC Mm. so that we would be ready to send it out if we were able to hit the timeline to kind of get the money out the door. And at the time, I think we sort of thought, look, we, we sort of hoped that we would get it back eventually, but we didn't know. I mean, this was 9 a.m., 10 a.m. on Friday morning. Yeah. Wasn't clear what that would look like, when that would be, how much recovery there would be. And so we decided to to sort of do that. And then at the same time, another problem we had is that we were able, I mean, we always felt very strongly that if customers had sent us money, even though it wasn't our fault, it was our responsibility to like make sure their employees got paid. And we had the capital over Friday's payroll. We did not have the capital to cover Wednesday's pay run the following Wednesday, which was much larger. Right. And that was going to be the 15th for, and so for in the US, it's typically the first and the 15th when you get, when people get paid. Or usually the, the 15th and the last day of the month. Right, 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 right. Would be, right. and so you get, some people get paid, you know, the 15th and the last day of the month. Some people get paid every other Friday. Right. That's most of it. But the 15th, in other words, is a big day for payroll generally. It's a very big day for payroll. And a bunch of that money was debited on Thursday before all of this went down from our client accounts. So it basically moved from our clients on Thursday over to our SVB account before the receivership and was then gonna, you know, scheduled to be paid out on Wednesday and frozen. And so what we didn't have the capital to cover payroll all the way through Wednesday, even if we spent every last time that we had. And so the second thing that I did is went out and talked to investors about getting an additional capital injection and basically raise money for the company. Like a venture capital fundraising round. Essentially. Yeah. And Ripplings, it was in a fortunate place that we've, we've always had, you know, even over the last year when late stage fundraising has has gotten harder, yeah. we've always had a bunch of investors who have been very supportive and wanted to invest more. And so I made a few phone calls and one of them was to Neil Mehta at Green Oaks and, and said, hey, Neil, here's the situation we're in. And there are a couple of things that I needed. I needed someone who could close the deal over the weekend, yeah. could wire first thing Monday morning and was okay with the idea that a lot of this money was going to go right out the door, you know, potentially to fund customer pay runs. Right. Um, and so, you know, I called up Neil Mehta at Green Oaks and said I wanted to do the round and wanted to raise $500 million. And a bunch of the investors that I called were interested, but all of their capital was tied up at SVB. Oh, really? Oh, interesting. Yeah. So they, they have money 
they can call capital from their LPs. And yeah. so normally, but normally that takes like two weeks or something. Yeah. But then they'll have some money that's always kind of available, Sitting you know, yeah, yeah. and lines of credit that they can draw on from the bank to fund something on short notice. The problem was that many of them, they're, they banked with SVB. And so they were like, we literally, we don't have a way of doing this. Fortunately, Neil wasn't in that situation. Pardon my ignorance. Is Green Oaks based here? Are they based in New York? And, you know, in other words, are there, is there a reason why they weren't kind of in the SVB network, so to speak? They're based in San Francisco. Mm. Um, I think that, I mean, I don't, I don't want to speak out of turn, but I, I believe that they were actually, I learned subsequently, one of the sort of crossover funds that had been concerned about SVB for a while. I see. Neil did say, oh, yeah, I wish we had told you. And I was like, yeah, I kind of wish you told me. That would, that would have been great. I, you guys, if, you know, maybe you could have told me like a month ago, I could have done yeah. something about it. But I started fundraising at 9 a.m. and signed a term sheet, which is for, as you know, for, for venture financings. Yeah. That's really kind of the penultimate step, but it's the, it's the real commitment. Like once mm. you sign a term sheet, it outlines some basic terms and every, everyone kind of views themselves as committed to doing the round at that stage. Yeah. We signed the term sheet on, on Friday night. So you started making calls Friday morning and had a $500 million commitment Friday night. That's right. That's not bad going. It's not bad. I think it's actually, it's a really good example though of like when the venture ecosystem works, how it works really well. You know, that it that it's possible to do those rounds where, you know, on mostly a handshake, you know, and a short document outlining key terms, capital can be committed that quickly. Right. Obviously, you know, no other fundraising round I've ever done has looked like that. Um, they've moved quickly, but never that quickly. You mean you haven't done a fundraising round for half a billion dollars from your kitchen table surrounded by Legos in the middle of a financial meltdown? That's not in 12 hours. That's yeah. not typically how you roll. Well, I, I've done all of those things with the exception of the 12 hour thing. It always, it always takes place at my kitchen table. Right, um, right, right, right. But uh, yeah, I think it's actually, it's also a testament to Green Oaks that, you know, they were able to make a decision that quickly and to sort of have a level of conviction to sort of like push the chips into the center of the table. Right. Um, there were some lawyers at, at Goodwin and Proctor that like pulled two consecutive all-nighters to kind of get the documents drafted mm. on Saturday and Sunday night. We signed them early Monday morning and the wires hit our account on Monday. And obviously like on Sunday night, the government announced that they would backstop all of these funds and that the money would become available on Monday. Yeah. Which theoretically kind of obviates the need for this $500 million round, right? Like theoretically, you could have just been like, mm, thank you for stepping up in our time of need, but we don't need the money. There are two things. Like I just deeply believe in this idea that term sheets are, are sacred. And I know that Green Oaks, if the FDIC had not made that decision, there might've been half a dozen banks that failed first thing Monday morning mm. and just went into the FDIC receivership process 9 a.m. Monday and the world would have been crumbling and Niels would have wired, you know, everything anyway. Um, right. And so I felt very, you know, committed. There was never a question of not doing it right. after we signed the term sheet on Friday. And also I think it's a round that is a, it's a great, it's a good round for the company. It's at a fair price. Because it valued the company at 11 billion. Is that right? Yeah, 11, 11 and 11.25. And how does that compare to your previous round? It's flat with our previous round, which we did in May of 2022. I see. Yeah. Which is in this market and under duress where you don't have a lot of leverage, that feels more than fair, I would guess, given that you've looked at some companies like yeah. Klarna, which is down 80%, or any of these SaaS companies, which have just been obliterated. That feels like a, it could have been much worse. No, I definitely. So I, I feel very good about the outcome. You know, we were going to have to raise some additional capital at some point. And so this pulls it forward a little bit. I think we now feel pretty co confident that we won't have to do that again, knock on wood. But um, this just sort of pulled forward the round that we were going to raise anyway. And it, and it gave us this important backstop, this sort of ability to, to sort of cover the customer funds 
at least the ones that had already been sent to us by customers mm. um, for their employees' payroll. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Yeah, because actually, when that weekend, I actually ended up talking to a guy. He was in New York. His company is rippling, and he was very angry because he was like, I didn't get my money. I got the email that said, I guess it was from Rippling. I think it comes from you guys. It says, congrats, you've been paid this week or whatever it says, form, email. And they went to his account and it's like, it's not there. And he's like a guy with three kids in New York. And he's like, WTF. I presume he got got the money on Monday. Yeah. So what what happened there, there are a couple things that, that, that went on. So first is those emails get triggered because the bank tells us yeah. that the money's been sent to the Federal Reserve. And so from our systems, believe that the money was out there, even mm-hmm. though we were trying to sort things out behind the scenes, the sort of computer system was saying, money's out there, like time to send the emails and yeah, congratulate yeah. people on payday, which is really unfortunate, of course. So we had to produce this file that with you know 50,000 payments in it for JP Morgan Chase. And we had to upload it by 1230. Mm. And we started really rushing to do this, you know, at 9am. And mm. so we had about three and a half hours to do something that we thought we were going to have, you know, a week, a week or two to yeah. produce. And we were very close. Um, so they generated this file at 1229. Wow. But we needed to check it. And so we, we were like, you know, this is a lot of money. You know, we need to make sure, do some sanity checks and make sure that this is correct. And so we called up JPMC and they agreed to hold the window for us for 15 minutes. And they were like, we can, we can give you till 1245. And we uploaded it at 1251. So it was six minutes late. Now, what that meant is actually a bunch of people did get paid on Friday. It was really any, any employee that had a JP Morgan Chase bank account Mm. and then anyone with bank accounts at a bunch of other sort of major banks that are sort of in a network with them. So we saw a lot of people at Bank of America, Wells Fargo, like sort of tended to be the larger banks. They all saw the money hit their account that day. And then people at other banks, it really depended on when their bank then processed this file. And Mm. some of the banks processed it over the weekend. And so they saw it in their accounts, you know, Saturday morning. And some at the very latest processed it first thing Monday and they saw the funds on Monday morning. Got you. Although not everyone saw the money hit their account on Friday. What it did do is I think at at every company, there were enough people that were getting paid that everyone at least, you know, believed that the money had been sent out. And so people felt a lot more confident about it arriving on Monday. Now, it obviously it doesn't it doesn't fix things for people that you know had mortgage payments due on yeah. Friday or had bills that were due on Friday. We agreed to cover sort of what do you call the overage charges that you're overdraft uh, overdraft yeah. fees for employees. So we they can submit that and then we will reimburse everyone for any overdraft fees. So obviously, look, it was not a wholly perfect ending. I mean, you know, there were definitely people that that got paid a day late. We did absolutely everything that we could to sort of make it happen on time. And and at the very least, we're able to make sure that, you know, everyone got paid at the absolute latest on Monday morning. And then obviously people on, on Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday, people got paid. And then it was business as usual after that. 
and stepping back because there, you know, there's a lot of postmortems. There's a lot of that are that are going on and have been done. There's also more kind of shock waves that have continued to ripple through the system. Not least Credit Suisse and uh, First Republic. For you, I imagine it was a kind of a it singed into your brain uh, some lessons or some things or some takeaways when you step back and be like whoa, that was close, like we escaped, but what are you going to do differently? Or what have you, what has this made you think about, especially to go forward and the, you know, you know, the Fed just raised, we're speaking on Wednesday, the Fed just raised the rates again by another 25%, which means all those bonds, those company banks hold are going to be worth even a little bit less. So it feels like there's, there's more to come here. I'm just uh, you running a business, especially one that runs on the rails of others. What have you walked away with? Well, there's a few things. I mean, first was that in like a moment of crisis like this, I think what's really important is to always to really put the customer first and to really over communicate. And at least in terms of what we were hearing from customers, I think things really turned around for us over the course of the day. Like early on, on Friday morning, a lot of people were like, what the hell? Why am I not getting paid? And I think by the end of the day, Customers, I think, were quite fairly, you know, frustrated that that people didn't get paid, you know, bank failure or not. Mm-hmm. Like that's the commitment that we made was that payroll would happen and happen on time. But also, I think many of them were appreciative and, and grateful of the steps that we had taken to sort of make sure that people got paid absolutely as quickly as possible. And so that that was really critical for us. More broadly than that, I mean, unfortunately. The broader lesson that we learned, which is, I think, the lesson that a lot of people are learning, is that we moved everything to JPMC. You know, we did not yeah. move things to, say, First Republic, yeah. right? And we yeah, did yeah. not move things to other regional banks. You know, we said, look, we're going to run all of our infrastructure through the single largest bank in the United States that has implicitly the full backing of the U.S. Federal Reserve. It's too big to fail. And it's too big to fail. And I think that, I mean, that is the risk for the banking system because like that's the lesson that we learned is we obviously, you know, can't keep balances in excess of the FDIC insurance limits at any bank that's not in that top three or four. And like in terms of this critical financial infrastructure, we're running it through one of those top three or four banks and that's it. That has, I think, a lot of implications for regional banks. And I think you're seeing some of the fallout of that, you know, even now. Well, especially for you, if you're dealing with it, if you're if you're servicing a lot of small and medium sized businesses, I mean, everybody's making the same calculus as you. I would I would imagine. I mean, you know, there'll be some businesses that are so small that they they're covered by the two fifty, but a lot of them won't be. Very few, because people think. I mean, two hundred fifty k is a lot of money for you and me. Yeah. But if you're a business that needs to make payroll. 250k means, you know, man, you got rent and then, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know, payrolls maybe half your expense, that's 125k in monthly payroll. How many people is that? That's maybe 10 to 20 people depending yeah. on how much your employees make. It's not a huge a huge company and you've got to have that much money available to you. So, I think most businesses, I think that many people don't fully understand that even very small businesses have cash sums on hand yeah. at various points in time to make payroll, to make rent, you know, in excess of 250K. And that's not a big, rich company. That's like a pretty, pretty small business with 10 to 20 employees. I mean, just playing out that string for a community bank, I mean, are you kind of screwed? Unless there's some kind of regulatory change or some different smoke signal from from the Federal Reserve or from Janet Yellen or whoever it may be that like, look, these are, we're going to, you know, back these the same way we back JP Morgan. There's kind of the risk reward just is completely skewed. Yeah. Look, I'm not a bank analyst, so I don't, um, you know, I'm not, uh, I don't have any specific advice for anyone on who they should bank with or where they should store their money. But when I look at it, I'm kind of like, Hey, look, you know, we've got to make sure that, you know, nothing like this ever happens again and that we're, you know, closely guarding our customers' funds. And that means that we'll be doing this through, um, you know, today through JPMC. And there are other partners that we could work with, obviously. But, you know, I think we would we would always stick with 
the sort of largest too big to fail institutions. The other thing I think is worth drawing out, which, you know, we're based here. I'm in Oakland. I think you're in San Francisco. You know, the place that SVB had in this universe. I don't know if you could talk about that a bit, because also this is not your first startup. You've been at this, you know, coalface in different ways for a long time, just to kind of explain how, like what it was and what it meant to this place, because obviously it's, it's disappeared, but it was an important cog in the machine, it feels like. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so I can tell you my own experience, Yeah. you know, when I started Rippling, one of the first things we needed was we needed access to this type of financial infrastructure to be able to sort of move money on behalf of clients in the way that we move money. And, um, you know, that's not just like opening a checking account. There are a lot of, you know, sort of systems that we need access to, services that we need, and there's regulatory infrastructure. We need special types of accounts and special types of more complex stuff. And SVB was willing to do that with me. And, And I can tell you that other banks would not have been. This was sort of a an expensive, complicated ask from a company that had no customers and, you know, not a lot of money raised. Mm. And it was, you know, even much later in the company's life cycle, when we started talking with other prospective partners, including JP Morgan and Citi and Wells, it took a long time to get through KYC and the sort of bank customer onboarding process, like even as a much more established company, right. it was not an easy thing. And I really developed, you know, a, a renewed appreciation later on for how big of a risk SVB was taking internally to sort of hand this over. And look, they did diligence and you know, yeah. a lot, there were some a lot of legal paperwork around it. But fundamentally, to, to give a company that had no customers and really nothing at all access to these types of rails, you know, we would not have been able to get our business off the ground without them. Mm. And I imagine that that's not a unique story for startups out here. I think it's not. I think there are a lot of companies that, you know, it's different for different businesses. And so for a lot of fintech businesses, they're actually using some of the bank's own infrastructure Mm. to build a fintech business of some kind. For other type of companies, it might just be about, you know, venture debt or, you know, the right access to capital or, you know, things like that. And so, look, I have hope that SVB pulls through it and makes it through it. I know they're obviously giving it a real go and, hey, they're the only institution in the United States with infinite FDIC coverage right now. So, you know, (laughs) it seems like on some level, they're the safest place to have your money right right now. But there's certainly, I think, something that will be lost if um, if they don't make it through. The other thing is just this kind of the meteor coming out of nowhere and slamming into earth kind of risk to the business. Because I don't imagine, you know, going back to 2008, that you this was on your bingo card or as even a possibility, or maybe it was. I'm just wondering how you think about that, especially as you manage risks and the known the known knowns and the known unknowns, et cetera? So, I mean, SVB was a single point of failure that we identified for our business, but with an extremely, what we had assessed to be an extremely low risk mm. of failure. And I think critically, we believed that we would have a lot more notice and see it coming. And so when we thought about issues to our business with Silicon Valley Bank, it wasn't like we would wake up one morning and like the bank would be a smoking hole in the ground. It would, you know, it would just, it was more like, you know, that they might no longer be able to support our volume, right. you know, that we would outgrow them. They would say, Hey, you got, we can't, you know, you guys are processing billions of dollars a month. We're not equipped for that scale, you, you know, and suddenly we would have to move off to something else. And so because of that, single point of failure. It's why we had set up Mm. infrastructure with JPMC and quite frankly, had started the process with some other banks as well. But because we assumed that this was not something that would just happen overnight or that we would only see, would only appear to us to be happening overnight, we always sort of thought we would have a few weeks to kind of get that set up. And that was what turned out to not be the case. Right. And for people who don't know, I don't know if you could give a, a brief history of 
Xenophids and what happened there, because I also think it gets back to this idea of the kind of, you know, you start a business, it does well, and then there's there's all these wonderful ways in which you are going to be humbled that you can't imagine coming and how they how they form. But if you could just talk about kind of Xenophids, what that was, and the, and how you ended up out of that business and then getting over to Rippling. Yeah, I mean, so Xenophids was a company that I started before Rippling that. I was CEO of the company from founding to when I was forced out for about three years. And during that three-year period, Zenefits was, I think, at the time, the fastest growing SaaS company ever. Yeah, it was like worth from zero to four and a half billion or something back when four and a half billion was really big <laughs> as in terms of valuation. Yeah. And we grew revenue from, you know, I think it was zero to one and then one to 20 in one year. Mm. And then the next year was supposed to go from 20 to 100, but we hit a lot of rough patches that year and it ended up going from 20 to about 65. Mm. And at the end of that year, I left the company. It also, we grew headcount from zero to about 20 people in one year and then 20 to 450 people in a year and then wow. 450 to about 1,600 in six months. Um, and there were a few things that happened. And one is there were a bunch of headlines in the media that I, I'll say I think there's a very different side to the story mm -hmm. that showed up in the media. A lot of it was about sort of uh, missteps that we made on the regulatory and compliance front. Some of it was true and accidental, and some of, quite frankly, what was in the media was just complete bullshit. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that actually the, the biggest mistake that I think I made at Zenefits was that we had identified this problem, which was that employers had all of this administrative work yeah. that they had as a result of having all of these different systems for HR. You yeah. know, they would have a payroll system, they'd have another system for enrolling in medical benefits, another for dental, and another for vision, another for 401k, and they'd have another system for managing document signing. And the fragmentation of all of these HR systems, which is quite frankly, by the way, a lot of how it works today in the UK is that mm. you have, yeah, yeah. you know, stage for payroll, you have something else as a core HRS system, you have something else. I can speak from ex uh, experience, News Corp. I don't know how many systems we have, but it's like, you know, there's a whole page of different apps to do different things within the company. It's a real gigantic pain and totally unuser friendly. Yeah. And so what you see is that some enormous portion of the, the just irreducible administrative work involved in running a company goes back to that central problem. And so what we did at Zenefits is we said, look, we're going to take all of this on for you. And rippling the value proposition is similar, but it's much broader because you know at, at Zenefits, it was really just about HR systems. Mm. And at Rippling, we sort of said, hey, look, this is not just about HR. For the same reason that you know, you got to deal with different systems for, you know, payroll versus insurance versus 401k or pen, what would be pensions in the UK. You also have the same problem where people need to get it set up, set up with email and Slack and they need to get their computer and they need to get key card access to the office and yeah. they need to get a corporate card and set up with expense reimbursements. And we can actually do all of that and simplify it a lot. But the mistake that we made at Zenefits was that we said, look, the, the demand for the product early on was so incredible mm. that I made a decision to grow the sort of commercial operations of the company ahead of our underlying engineering capabilities. Mm. And what that meant in practice is we said, look, we're going to just take on all of this administrative work for you. So we'll do it for you. And we're going to have a bunch of people in the background doing a lot of this. And what we're going to do is we're going to gradually automate this I on see. the back end over time yeah, yeah. to replace people with software. And the problem that created, there were a few of them. One is that when you're doing things manually, there's an error rate around that. Yep. And so there were a lot of companies that were like, hey, the idea behind this is incredible. But, you know, we've, the execution leaves a little something to be desired because there were, you know, little things going wrong mm. and they were going wrong with this critical element, you know, that was like payroll and benefits. Yeah, yeah. And the only acceptable error rate around that was, was zero. And the second problem it created was that actually as the 
operations got scaled out, as we were doing this across tens of thousands of companies and hundreds of thousands of employees, it actually grew nearly impossible to automate. Mm. And so for a bunch of very subtle reasons, I think it's you can start with software and grow the software over time to handle more and more use cases. But if the process gets scaled out too much manually, it's nearly impossible to just replace it wholesale with automation down the line. And so it got harder and harder. Oh, that's interesting because, you know, software is supposed to be eating the world and that's supposed to just be very easy. <laughs> well, I think it's one of the reasons why a lot of big incumbents have trouble hmm. sort of flipping things over to software right. is because it's hard to do that when you're already scaled up, which is one of the things that we, we sort of discovered or, or rediscovered. And so the automation was perpetually behind and, and that meant that we were, you know, upside down on our gross margins, you know, financially, the company was burning a lot more than than was healthy or expected. And it was sort of in that context that I think a lot of investors got extremely concerned about the financial health of the business. And all of this stuff about compliance and licensing issues started coming up that sort of culminated in my resignation. It started basically immediately working on Rippling at that point. Like immediately, like the next day, or did you like take a breather and go to Mexico and hang out on the beach? I took like a month or two off and then got to work. Right. I'd love to get your take also, because you've been doing this for a long time. One of the things I find fascinating right now in the market is, especially when you look at uh, SaaS companies, software as a service, and how dramatically their valuations have fallen, and everybody's kind of cutting spending, et cetera. It feels like there's a whole generation of founders who have never operated in anything other than basically zero interest rate environments where everything is kind of growing relatively easily. And now the world has changed pretty dramatically. How do you see this playing out? And do you, I mean, I'm sure you talked to lots of other founders, like what, what is the mood out there of like all of a sudden, like I was, my company's worth a billion dollars, you know, a year ago, and now it's worth 200 million or a hundred million and I have to take a giant haircut to raise money just to survive, et cetera. I think that internally, I think most founders have never been as sort of positive and confident as maybe the external presentation might come across. You know, like the media narrative about founders of tech companies Mm. is there there's only two things. You're either like a hero or a villain and there's sort of very little room for anything in between. And Totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's very um, one dimensional. It's very one dimensional. And so the, the narrative about founders has always been, oh my God, like you're crushing it, you know, and, and, <laughs> and, and sometimes even people, people will feed into that. And so, you know, sometimes there, there are people who will say, oh yeah, you know, we're, we're crushing it. Yeah. And then I think, but like actually in practice, it never feels that way. Like even when things are going well, I think most, most people who are founders of companies, even when things have been successful, it's very, very hard and often sort of deeply unpleasant and emotionally and psychologically very scarring. And that's even when things are working. And so I don't think the times were ever so good that I mean, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's just me, but like, even when things were really good, like I never felt like, you know, oh, this is easy, you know, like it, it always felt like, man, you get crushed at any moment and smushed like a bug and you're constantly just struggling to to survive. I also like, I started um, myself, like I started working in tech in San Francisco in 2006. Mm. And so I you know, I wasn't around for 2001, but I was, man, I was, I was trying to raise around a financing for a company in January of 2009 Ooh. and it was not fun. So I've seen, yeah. I've, I've, I've seen that side of the coin as well. So how is it today? Just given the broad macro backdrop, is it appreciably harder or is that not the right way to think about it? Cause it feels like, it just feels if you just, and again, I'm a journalist, I'm not running a company, but just writing about yeah. Meta laying off 20,000 people and Amazon now laying off 25,000 people and like venture capital funds taking big write downs on all of these companies funded, you know, two years ago at these crazy valuations. It does feel like there's a kind of crashing back to earth that psychologically is, yeah. is different. It's hard. It's for sure harder to raise money. 
Although, I mean, I I feel weird saying that because I, I do feel like we we were just very lucky to be in a yeah. position where we just raised a lot of money in a very short time on pretty good terms. But in general, it's very clear that it's harder to raise money than it used to be. And it's going to be, I think, a longer time before people see exits and before, look, a lot of employees are paid in stock and that stock, yeah. you know, it's going to take longer for a lot of companies to sort of be realized. And there are obviously a lot of companies that are going under. And I know that, you know, every time that happens, that's a small tragedy for a whole bunch of people that sort of, you know, really believed in what was going to happen at that company. So that part of it is for sure harder. I think yeah. there are other things that that get maybe a little bit less hard. It's a little bit easier to, to recruit people. You know, that's something that that I think gets a little bit easier, you know, in lean times for businesses to sort of, you know, like before getting great people is always hard, but there were definitely some years in there where it just felt impossible yeah. to hire the yeah, engineering yeah. talent that we needed to hire. And so either we've gotten better or it's gotten a little bit easier and maybe some combination of both. But that that makes a big difference. And that that's sort of like maybe a silver lining to the hard times. Lastly, before I let you go, when SVB collapsed, you saw all of these crazy stories kind of coming out of the woodwork of like, you know, investors opening their personal checkbooks to cover, you know, their little startup so they didn't die, et cetera. Is there a story that you heard through the grapevine or in your travels over the last two weeks where you're like, well, that is the craziest thing that came out of all of this madness? I mean, I, I think I heard many of the same stories that, that you did. I mm. mean, I heard about some seed investors, some of whom I know very well that did that. People who I, I know from personal experience are just really incredible human beings, like, you know, Sam Altman. Um, yeah. I mean, I heard about this only only second or third hand. Vinod Kosla, who I think of, you know, by reputation, I mean, his VC firm is always the one that they're the toughest negotiators on, yeah. you know, anything. And, and then you hear that he just kind of like personally wrote checks to a bunch of companies and that, that's, that's pretty cool. So I think a lot of people did the right thing. And certainly I feel like a bunch of our investors, you know, helped us over that weekend to make sure that, you know, we were in a good position come Monday morning. And even though it didn't end up sort of being necessary, mm. man, it, it sure didn't, it wasn't clear that that was going to be the case on Friday or Saturday. Yeah. Well, look, I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, congratulations on surviving the meteor. Thank you for, for sharing. Yeah. Thanks a bunch. Thanks for, for chatting with me. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Parker for taking the time. Thank you all for your ratings, for your views, for listening, of course. And that's it for me this week. You can find me as ever. Um, we'll probably be doing a, something on the paper on the kind of rippling experience. So do check that out at thetimes.co.uk or pick up an actual physical paper on the Sunday. Why not? Um, you can also find me on Twitter at Danny Fortson or you can email me danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. That is it for me this week. Take good care and we'll talk to you very soon. Bye-bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Thank you. 